This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Alex Gasparmaya, who earned his PhD in molecular biology from the University of Coimbra in Portugal and completed postdoctoral training at Mount Sinai in New York before coming to the Mayo Clinic where he started his own research group. He has received numerous awards, including an NIH Career Enhancement Award from the Mayo Clinic Ovarian Cancer Spore Program, and more recently, the very prestigious Young Investigator Department of Defense Ovarian Cancer Academy Award. He has published his research in high-impact journals and has presented his work across the globe. He is an assistant professor of the Functional Epigenomics Laboratory at the Mayo Clinic. Today, we'll be discussing epigenomics. Thank you for joining us today, Alex. Thank you for having me. So Alex, I have to ask the most obvious question, which is what on earth are epigenomics? Because I suspect (laughs) that much of our audience is going, epigenomics, what is that? Right. The the omics part comes from the sequencing capabilities that now we have. So epigenomics is a composite word from epigenetics and omics. We nowadays have the the ability of sequencing a variety of different tissues, a variety of different cells. And so all those sequencing data can be accumulated in what we call omics. The epigenetics part of it is, is basically looking at everything that happens in the nucleus that is not the DNA sequence itself, right? So currently, I mean, there's there's obviously various uh, definitions of what epigenetics could be. In the realm of epigenomics right now, we really focus on all the changes that happen in a nucleus, including open chromatin, including different histone marks, including different methylation status of the DNA, all of those things can be measured by sequencing technologies that, you know, we, we then incorporate and, and call such as the epigenomics and the epigenomic world. So you're saying we all have genes, we have chromosomes, we have DNA double-stranded, and, and now we have obviously the capacity or the capability of looking at everybody's whole genome. So what you're looking at is really what happens to those genes. When I give my initial lecture in genome biology uh, for the graduate school, I actually just gave it a couple of weeks ago, I really like to talk about epigenomics as this idea of the annotation of our genome. For every cell, for example, every nucleus in each cell contains DNA that if you would stretch it out, it would basically be like two meters long, right? The way it gets all organized and, and compacted into a tiny, very, very tiny nucleus that it's micrometers long, it has some sort of magic, right? Because everything has to be very well organized in, in there. The way the cell access that DNA sequence is very important, right? Because for example, we have 
muscle genes, genes that are important in muscle cells, those genes have to be active in muscle cells and have to be repressed in neuron, neurons, for example, right? And so the way the cell organizes that information or annotates it in order for it to go every time that needs that information, go back to it, is what we call the epigenomic world. So all those annotations, you know, like I, when you highlight something important in your textbook, those annotations are very important for the cell to keep on going and, and getting access to it. And those could be important for activating a gene or activation of genes, but it could also be very important. And they actually are very important for repression of genes, right? So you don't want a neuron, a neuronal specific gene to be expressed in the muscle. And this is important in normal tissue, but it's even more important in, in cancer or other malignancies. And what actually happens, and that's what we like to study in the lab, is that the chromatin and this, this organization of the nucleus gets changed in order for, for example, cancer cells to thrive. And so we try to understand how the, the cells make use of the organization of the, of the chromatin to, for their benefit. And if we understand it, well, we can target those and, you know, therefore develop novel therapies for each uh, disease that we want to study. I get it now because, you know, I remember years ago when I studied and learned about cancer, basically, you know, the overgrowth of the cells, the suddenly the lack of inhibition that when a cell touched a cell, it didn't grow anymore. And so there were many signals that were lost in cancer cells that normal cells have. And so what I hear you saying is that this genetic organization and annotation is really critical and is expressed a certain way in normal cells and is expressed not the same way in cancer cells. And it's the chromatin then, the stuff you're studying that seems to be the critical element, at least in some cancers, that tells a cell how to behave. Am I making it too simple? No, that's right there. So it is important to note that cancer as a disease is mostly genetic, right? Most of the, the cancers that we know thus far start with, with point mutations or, or amplification. So it, it is a genetic disease. What happens after those mutations drive the tumor is yet to be uncovered. And, and so epigenetics and, epigen and epigenomic analysis actually plays an important role. For example, if you have a, a specific tumor, for example, in ovarian cancer, you remove that tumor by surgery, and then you, you start the treatment of chemotherapy or now with novel therapies such as the PARP inhibitors. A lot of the times what happens after the first success in removing the tumor and treating it with chemotherapy is we get drug resistance to the therapy. And thus far, there's across different tumors, it's, it's very hard to find specific mutations that can explain why now the tumor became resistant or metastatic. And so those novel acquired capabilities of the tumor are using epigenetics and are using the chromatin reorganization in order to thrive. And that's what we're, we're trying to target. That's absolutely fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this field? I mean, obviously it's the cell biology things that you studied, but were you always studying chromatin? Actually, when I go back and I try to like put together my career path, it is kind of interesting because I actually started as a marine biologist. That was my undergrad. So I was studying the oceans. And my last year of my marine biology studies, I actually, instead of, you know, going on a fancy boat ride and like travel around the world, which is what I kind of wanted to do initially, I ended up going to a molecular genetic lab and I did my internship there. 
And what we actually studied at the time was the nuclear organization of these parasites that infect uh, uh, clams. It was more like a phylogenetic approach. We were trying to understand what is the, the closest partner of these parasites. We actually ended up understanding that it was very close to, for example, Plasmodium falciparum, which is the malaria parasite. And so by looking at the nucleus, and, and in this case, the, this particular parasite has microchromosomes, so they're really tiny, and we were isolating them using these uh, DNA gels that are really long. We were looking at all the microchromosomes. So even, even when I started as a marine biologist, I was uh, already looking at the nucleus uh, specifically. I did my PhD through the University of Coimbra, but I actually ended up being part of uh, an exchange program. So I did all my work at UCSF in San Francisco. And when I was studying there, I actually fell in love with embryonic stem cells because of their developmental capabilities of like becoming whatever, right? My passion in studying chromatin and chromatin biology really started from there because I was doing an, a, a screen to try to find new genes that were important in pluripotency. So that the ability of these cells to differentiate in all kinds of cells. And I, we found a chromatin regulator. So that was my, you know, my favorite gene when I was a, when I was a graduate student. I found CHD1, which is a chromatin remodeler, and it affects the way the chromatin is organized. And then so from then on, I really started to look at everything that happens in the nucleus. And my passion is really to try to unravel things that I joke in the lab that I say, whatever happens in the nucleus, I care about. If it doesn't really happen in the nucleus, maybe I don't care so much about, which is not true, but you know, it's just that the focus of the lab and my focus is really to try to understand how, despite the, the genetic code being similar, how this organization really changes the phenotype of a cell. It's interesting because you're talking about resistance to treatment. So you have a tumor removed, uh, standard therapies, which of course, back before we had some of the immunomodulators, it was basically kill cells that grow the fastest, very non-specific treatment, which we had horrific toxicities and, and the fields across the board have advanced so much because now we're looking at specific targets within cells. What have you learned? Are there things you now know about primary tumors that enable you to predict where tumors may respond better or not? Or is your work really more with the, the chromatin to look more at that second stage after you're finding resistance at what's gone awry at that point? Right. So, I mean, unfortunately, I think at this point in the state of the art of the epigenomic analysis, I don't think we have a good understanding of the chromatin organization to predict response to therapies. Genetically, we do, right? Because, you know, there's, for example, uh, mutations in the BRCA genes. They're important in breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and also pancreatic cancer and others. And so those genes will tell us, for example, if the tumor will be responding to PARP inhibitors. Those associations now can be done. In the epigenomic world, we still don't have a very good biomarkers, let's say, that can tell you from the primary tumor that this, you know, the, the certain therapy would be the ideal. But what we are actually trying to do is, what you, as you said, is prevent metastatic potential or prevent the drug resistance. And in, in those realms, there's certainly a lot of work ha that has been done using DNA metal, um, methylation inhibitors of DNA methylation, using inhibitors of acetylation, using novel therapies as well. So there's, there's quite a, few, a range of epigenomic drugs or epigenetic drugs that are out there that could potentially be very important for preventing met metastatic or, or drug response. 
have you seen anything in, and this may be just show the fact that this is a new field. Uh, I'm very naive in my understanding, but are there epigenetic or epigenomic differences between people? Or is this sort of a universal sort of nucleus? We all have genes and we all may evolve similar or different epigenomic changes, or may one family have a certain epigenomic profile that may differ from another family? Right. That's a really huge uh, question in the field. There's actually a, a very interesting paper that got recently highlighted in the New York Times. There was this photographer that collected photos of people that are very similar despite being completely unrelated. So he was profiling for, I think, I, I forget how long, but I, I believe it was like close to 20 years where he was trying to find people that really look alike. And, and the photographer was basically taking pictures of these people that clearly look very similar. And recently, a researcher, an epi- a colleague of mine from Barcelona, he basically profiled these people that look very similar. And what he actually found globally, I mean, there's obviously lots of nuances, is that these people that are very similar despite being you know, co- from completely different ancestries, they share a lot of genes in common and in different polymorphisms, but the epigenome is very different because they, you know, whether they live in completely different places and and all that. So, I mean, in in a way it kind of translates into the fact that the epigenome can really change dramatically. I mean, the epigenome is the first boundary from the exterior world to our DNA sequence, right? So it's really the ultimate thing that can change a lot given our food uh, habits, sleeping habits, all those things. So the epigenome somehow is is very sensitive to all those things, and it can obviously change quite a bit amongst people. And that also makes our uh, life as researchers much more complicated because, you know, genetically, you can get a pool of like, you know, 30 people that respond and 30 people that don't respond and look at their DNA and say, well, I can see some of these uh, genetic changes and I can compare them. The epigenome somehow can vary much more. For an individual, do you see epigenomic changes over time as as you've studied for instance, patients maybe going forward. Have you seen changes even in an individual's epigenomics? When you treat patients with drugs, you can certainly see changes from specific cells. So one thing that it's very important to note, and I, I did forget to mention this initially, is that in our body, we have 220 different cell types or around that. They all, for the most part, share the same DNA sequence, and yet their epigenome is very specific. So an individual carries... 200 and something different epigenomes, if not more, because, you know, there's like subpopulations. And so, you know, yes, beyond this variability, we also have changes that occur with time. And so like, for example, in my lab, we've been very involved in a study from the Center of Individualized Medicine, looking at clonal mitopoiesis, which is mutations that get accumulated with age. Some people, you know, after their 60s and 70s and 80s, start accumulating certain mutations in their blood cells mostly in the mitopoietic stem cells, there are clones. So these typically should keep genetic variability, but we started, you know, defining 2% or 3% of these cells start having specific mutations. And all these mutations, at least the ones that don't become silent in terms of like, we don't really uh, associate with any disease at a given time, they all change the epigenome quite significantly. And so we started studying those because precisely they are affecting the epigenome. This is a very recent study that we actually have it's already in preprint, but it's, it hasn't been uh, peer-reviewed yet. 
it's about these mutations, these uh, what we call clonal matopoiesis of indeterminate potential mutations or CHIP. These mutations can be very important or have been uh, shown to be very important in severity of COVID-19. So, for example, in the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we started sequencing patients and noticed that several of them did include some of these uh, mutations. And their epigenome significantly changes because precisely they have these mutations. And, you know, probably through time, before inflammation and after inflammation, that could be true too. We don't see that yet because we didn't have the ability of sequencing them before and after infection. But we do see some changes that could very easily be changing through time. So you mentioned early on that a lot of your interest literally stemmed from looking at stem cells and the pluripotent potential of these cells. Is it possible someday that the future would be that you can retrofit them to basically have a very subspecialized cell that you could go backwards and reprogram it to grow into something else? Right. Well, in clinical applications, the reprogramming technologies have really expanded significantly. So what you basically are are saying is, you know, research that has been done actually while I was a graduate student. So this Japanese scientist called Shinya Manaka, he was able to find the, the perfect cocktail to change normal differentiated cells back to a stem cell. And then nowadays we can reverse their course and really change from a fibroblast that we have in the skin all the way to potentially beta cells to try to fix diabetes, for example. So some of these things are already in clinical trials right now. And I know, for example, for retinal diseases that actually has been already successfully approved by the FDA. So some of these things are already prime time. That's wonderful. So when you think about what you are doing in your lab in the field of epigenomics, what do you see the next five years looking like? And then where do you think epigenomics will go in the future for medicine and for individualized medicine? What do you think the promise is? Currently, and I mean, that's obviously very biased towards what I'm studying, but I do believe that For example, in the field of cancer, resistance and and metastatic potential has a lot more to do with the epigenome than the genome itself, so novel mutations that arise. And we're really investing a lot of our efforts right now is to try to understand the epigenome in the context of single cells. So we are very interested in cellular heterogeneity. In a tumor, you will have very different cells. They're not all just one kind of cell. There's like a significant heterogeneity. And my lab currently is really pushing very strongly towards analyzing these tumors at the single cell level to understand cellular heterogeneity. And then when we understand cellular heterogeneity, we can also start looking at subpopulations of cells. And so we are very interested in this stem cell capabilities, like the cancer stem cells as an an idea. Maybe it's not a subpopulation, maybe it's a substate, but those states will obviously be uh, epigenomic driven because, you know, they will have the ability of changing very quickly in response to drug treatment or in response to other extrinsic uh, signals that drive the, the metastasis. So my, I think in the next five years, we, we will see a lot of cellular heterogeneity and how epigenomic analysis can really help define those and hopefully target some of those uh, effects as well. So do you see this then as going towards precision therapeutics? Is this Mm -hmm. in the realm of what you would consider precision therapeutics, or is this something different? 
that's really what we're aiming for. I mean, if we are able to understand within each patient how heterogeneous the tumor is, and not just the, the tumor cells themselves, but the tumor microenvironment, the immune system, how is it communicating with the tumor? How is our uh, other cells, the normal cells, the, the fibroblasts and the endothelial cells, how are they communicating with the tumor? And how those things really help the tumor thrive or survive upon some treatment? That's precision therapeutics right there. It's absolutely fascinating. It's a field, I think, for many of us that we know little about, and it's tremendously exciting because I think the promise, especially in fields like ovarian cancer, where our our interventions and our therapeutic treatments have been so limited in the past that this shows great promise. So on behalf of some of my patients who are no longer with us and patients I will care for in the future, I thank you for all your efforts. Thank you. So today we've been talking about epigenomics with Dr. Alex Gaspar-Maya. Thank you for your time, Dr. Gaspar-Maya. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. See, your genes really matter both now and into the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.